He'll be bumpy. <laughs> Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we are going to tackle the incredibly easy task of talking about how to evaluate coaches. Um, I don't know about you, Cody, but uh, when I watch basketball, I think, my goodness, the, the players, it's hard to figure out who's really the best player and how much someone moves the needle. But those coaches on the sideline, I mean, that's the easiest job in the world to evaluate. Um, he should put this player in the game. If he did it, I think he's a good coach. If he didn't, probably needs to be fired. He's the worst coach there is. And um, I don't know. Did he foul? Did he foul when he needed to foul up three? Maybe something like that. Did he have a bad out-of-bounds play? Why was this player on the court? Why did he draw up the out-of-bounds play for this player? That's a bad coach. Good coaches don't do that stuff. I've also noticed good coaches have really good players. <sighs> yeah. How are we going to do this? How are we going to figure out how in the world uh, basketball, an NBA coach, is is uh, good at his job or not? You know, you'd think with an award where the acronym is just my name, you know, you'd think that I'd be better at coming up with an answer. What do you, what do you, what do you mean the acronym, acronym is your name? So what Coach of the Year, if you, if it's you say it, it's Co- Cody because you have the T in there. Do you not include the T in the acronym? It's like it's like <laughs> Lord of the Rings. When you see it like out there, it's L-O-T-R, right? Well, no one I, goes lore. Well, yes, but sometimes the article V or A or whatever is left out of an acronym, and typically that's the case here. I think with Lord of the Rings, it's for clarity. Because if you're online and you just type lore, people might not know what you're talking about. But you put that. It's like Back to the Future. B-T-T-F. you got to get as many things in there so people know what you're talking. Look, today we're going to give you we're going to give you Cody for Cody. OK, thank you. Oh, this I, is I'll allow that's all I need. That's all I need. But yeah. my point with that is, you know, I thought maybe maybe because I share a name with it that I would be better at this. This is weird. I've been watching the NBA for a long time. I've been liking to wade into the whole choosing who gets to win what awards and whatever else every year. I don't know if I've ever actually tried to determine coach of the year because you were like, who do you think the coach of the year is? And I looked at it. I'm like, I don't know if I've ever figured out a coherent way to do this. When I sat down, I'm like, I, th- I think this is impossible. And you're like, yep, let's do this. So that's that's where I'm starting from today is what are we even going to do about this award? Well, do you have in your head like uh, uh, this guy's a good coach? I kind of have three groups that I keep in my head usually as seasons progress. I have like, boy, this guy seems like a really good coach who's adding value and um, you know, if you replace him with a ton of other people, the team would get worse. Maybe he's got some great tactics, X's and O's. Maybe I trust him in the playoffs. Maybe just there seems to be value added from him. There's like a middle group in my head of like, yeah, he could go he could go either way. He doesn't seem to stand out as a great coach, but doesn't seem to be doing things that I mean I don't I don't I don't work for the team. I don't know. Seems like it could be okay. And then there's like a third group which is you're just actively wondering what they're doing sometime. And um, I have to say, in my experience, just to seed how hard this is, just to seed the conversation today, I think I think in the past, those groups were big, like more evenly distributed. That first, that last group was bigger. And now I feel like, man, a lot of coaches in the NBA seem really good. They get these big staffs. They have these really, the game is really complex as we've talked about. And uh, it just doesn't seem like there are play, there are coaches out there that you think, hmm, they're going to get fired soon. The team's going to get better and they might not get another head coaching job. And when we're going back and doing research for this episode, there's a ton of coaches that have won coach of the year that fall into that category. We'll talk about why, where they win coach of the year. And then a few years later, they're not coaching anymore because, you know, we don't want to be too harsh, but they just, they just weren't excelling necessarily at that craft. And, um, and if you're not put in the right situation, sometimes, you know, I don't know, teams don't want to hire you again or something. You just kind of fizzle out. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough job. We should probably mention that incredibly so- tough job. A, cu- a couple things about what you just said. Number one, with like the amount, like how big coaching staffs are, it's crazy to me. Like whenever I watch a game, I look at the bench and I'm like, "Hey, I remember you coaching this. Hey, I, you used to coach. Wait, you, you you were like every coach is 
team is made up of like former full-blown coaches of other teams, right? So there's just like an immense amount, like a quantity and quality of coaching talent. But even in your initial definition, right? When you first started going off, you're like, there's a few buckets. This one group seems to add value. This this other group could add value. You, you even seem a little bit, you know, not so confident on it, Ben. So when you say a, a, a coach seems to add value or they could add value, like what is your starting point? Like what is what are you looking at that seems to be a positive thing from these coaches? I, I, I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> what do the tactics look like? What are the what do the X's and O's look like? Are they are they doing things that seem progressive and different from other teams in the league that seem to be creating success? And if they weren't doing those things, if they were doing something that was a little more vanilla or traditional, maybe the team wouldn't function as well. Is, has the coach tried something creative? Has the coach done something different with a star player? For example, in 1999, Larry Brown said, Allen Iverson, you're like 5'11", okay? And you like to score a lot. Why don't I take you off the ball more? Why don't I just move you to shooting guard? I know, I know you're six feet tall, and that's completely breaking all the rules of how people played basketball in 1998, but why don't I do that? That's different. That stands out. And if you do that, and then it seems to help the team, and Philadelphia gets better that year, and they get more competitive, and Iverson has, yeah, at that point in time, I think the best year of his career in 1999, that's the kind of thing I at least take note of. Um and then there's there's other stuff. There's how are you how are you smaller things like how are you using your lineup, game to game adjustments, the system you're running with your team fits into all of this that we're talking about. So I think at a high level, those are the things I think about. But there's so much more that we don't know, right? And I think that's I think that's part of the problem that makes it extremely difficult to evaluate coaching from the outside because it's like there's actually more that I want to know that I don't know than the things we actually know. Yeah. So in the words of Squealer, it's tactics, comrades. It's tactics. That's what we're talking about for, for setting this whole thing up. Is that a Calvin and Hobbes reference? It is not. It's another animal. It's a, it's a animal farm reference for that one. For, for my literary people out there that are just waiting for book shout outs every episode. It's a good uh, one. But when I, when I think... It's interesting because you, you talk about trying revolutionary things or trying some like weird tactics or strategies and... I don't, know, I don't know if you feel the same way, and I, I don't necessarily want to get into, like, let's hardcore talk about every coach in the league right now, but I think about someone like Nick Nurse with the Raptors, and I feel like even this season, he's trying out some interesting things. Like, he's playing his guys a lot of minutes, but I feel like there's a lot of defensive concepts that he still busts out that other teams don't necessarily try, you know? Um, I think especially with, like, superstar players, he sells out a lot to try and stop them from, from getting what they want, like really blitzing Luka hard, preventing Anthony Davis from rolling in the pick and roll, things like that. But it doesn't seem like Nick Nurse is anywhere near the top of anybody's coach of the year rankings right now. So, yes, there is like a an innovation trying things sort of thing, but there seems to be something else to it. And that's kind of the thing that I find so elusive about the ward is we can point to a bunch of these different things. You can say this, you can say this, but at the end of the day, like it kind of doesn't matter unless the team is also really good, right? Well, the, you mean the voting on the award itself? Yeah, I guess. I think I think it's very predictable. Okay. I think it's very predictable. I think I think it plugs into why this conversation is so hard. We'll talk about how it's predictable and exactly what historically has gone into winning this award in a second because it's just it's just fascinating to me. But I mean, let's let's stick on where we are in this conversation um, because I think for a lot of fans and. Of course, sitting around talking about basketball, fans have access to basketball. They don't get paid to do it for a living. They don't get paid to cover the sport, but certain fans know a ton. They follow, they watch a ton. They follow a ton. And that bleeds into analysts and journalists that cover the game who are paid for a living. Some of them are focused on one team. So they, they see one team 82, 82 times, and they see everybody else like two or four times. Um, so there's bleed over in how fans and analysts and journalists and media members perceive coaches and talk about coaches. And I think a huge one that I see for a lot of people is the rotation. Like what players are playing? You know, oh, my, t my team lost because this coach sat this player down the stretch and played this other player. 
down the stretch. You know, why, why doesn't James Wiseman get more minutes? That kind of thing. Um, and, and we don't have to get into that whole situation with Golden State, but just as an example, I think his sort of trajectory, especially this season, has fascinated me more as a case study for something like this than maybe any other player in recent memory because Wiseman is someone who had very little experience coming into the NBA, but by virtue of being picked second, it's actually created a situation here in Detroit now and, and, and in Golden State before where he's playing minutes that he's really only playing because he was picked second. And, for you know, go, for the sake of the fact that the guy was picked second, I really, really hope he develops and, and has a good NBA career. But right now, he's just not there. He's, he's just not there. And so most players in that situation are picked 20th or 40th or 60th or undrafted. And you rarely get to see players at his level just constantly getting minutes. But if you're a fan and you think about that investment and you see the promise that the player has, it's just incredible physical specimen with the wingspan. And you know, he looks like he's chiseled out of marble and throwing it down on people and blocking shots into the sixth row. And you focus on those salient factors. Then sometimes the team loses and you go, well, it's because they took... Wiseman out of the game or something. I'm not, as I said, I'm not sure the Warriors fans actually said that this season, but this is the thing. Why is Grant Williams getting the inbounds pass at the end of the game? I think fans often sort of hop on to those specific salient examples when they think about coaches a lot. Um, and it can create a very sort of simplified, reduced version of what a coach does. Because as I said earlier, I think there's like 998 other things going on. And those two, those two things are very small. I think what's it, I really actually, I think Wiseman's a good starting point for here because we have two different teams that have two very different goals between the Golden State Warriors and the Detroit Pistons, right? The Warriors are defending champs. Ideally in their mind, they would like to go back and defend that championship. They would like to compete once again. The Pistons, maybe at the beginning of the season it was like let's flirt with being a playoff team and then later on it's like all right we don't have Cade anymore let's let's I don't know whatever they change it to be so it actually like seems like both teams immediately you know they have their sights set on different goals okay James Wiseman being played for the Warriors didn't really add to that goal he's not the type of player at this point in his career to really add to a championship level team but if you're a team that's not quite as successful Shouldn't a coach that's maybe with a developing team that has no chance of winning a championship get quote unquote more coach of the year points by developing players throughout the season? Like it almost seems unfair that we just like cut out the coaches that aren't actually coaching championship level teams because there's a lot of other things besides winning. There's also the development of players. There's the development of chemistry and lineups and confidence and things like that. And in that case, playing James Wiseman more minutes for like the Pistons is actually a good thing compared to not playing him for the Warriors. So it's also weird that it feels like we're grading people on entirely different rubrics. I think the development of players actually creates a blind spot for the voters historically. And we'll talk about some more blind spots in a little bit when we get into the historical voting and how to predict the award, the award, and we can tell you who's going to win the award this season or who's going to finish in the top three or four, almost guaranteed. Uh, when we get to that, we'll talk about more. But I think sticking on this development track you almost get penalized if you develop the players because then the players get the credit sometimes, right? So yeah. the one I'm thinking of, um, well, let's let's come back to it because actually I think it can go the other way. But it's a long-term thing, right? So if you develop the players over multiple seasons, where does the coach get coach of the year? That's not how people are voting on coach of the year. They're voting on a, on a very like, what happened this year compared to last year? What happened What happened to the team based on what I was expecting? What happened to the team based on who was injured and who... Okay, I, I think we've teased it long enough, Cody. We, we have to actually get to how this vote has gone historically before we can continue the conversation. Expectations are king. The expectations are everything. Basically, what has happened historically in voting for coach of the year is if you look at what a team is expected to do in the preseason 
and basketball reference has this data going back uh, basically to the end of the 90s. It starts to get consistent in the year 2000. They've got some other votes before that. But even back to 1985, you can look at preseason championship odds. And you can get a night. It's a little different than the teams over under in their wins because some teams you expect to, you know, regular season is different than postseason kind of thing. But if you go back and you look at a team's expect uh, uh, win total that's expected based on the betting market in the preseason, so we expect them to win 26 games, and then the team wins 46 games, you can pretty much book it that that coach, no matter the circuit, no matter what happened, no matter who the players are, it doesn't matter. If everyone thought they weren't going to be good, and then they were pretty good, a 20-game, you know, overperformance of that expected number um they're either going to win it or they're going to come in second or third they're going to get buzz in fact we've got here we we went and pulled the data a rare thing to do on this show i know (laughs) um since the year 2000 if you look at the vegas win totals in the preseason that basketball reference has and then you look at the final number of wins for a team the teams with the largest differential in that time period, this is 23 seasons, the, the coach of that team has finished, here, here are the top changes, like the 2014 Phoenix Suns. They outperformed their expected win differential by 27 and a half wins. They were expected to win 21 games, they won, or 20.5 games was the over-under, and they won 48 games. That was Jeff Hornacek. Uh, he finished second in Coach of the Year with 37 first-place votes, so almost basically winning the award. Um, he he lost the award to a guy named Greg Popovich. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about him more in a second. But he finished second. If you just go down the board and you're like, who had the best differential from the preseason expectations to the actual final record the coaches finished second first second first 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 third first first fifth fourth third second fifth then you start to get to you know outperforming your differential by a smaller number but basically y'all you win the coach of the year or you almost win the coach of the year and that's before we get into the huge second part of the equation which is how good is the team in terms of wins right like if you're expected to win 40 games and you win 60 you're pretty much getting coach of the year. Uh, There may be a few mitigating factors that put you to second or something, but if you're expected to win 15 games and you win 30, ah, your team still might not be good enough to really garner that attention. So it's hard to say if you'll finish like third or sixth. And then there's a few other small things that go into it, but that's pretty much how coach of the year works. That's it. So that's the bump you said, the the example from like 15 wins to 30 wins. It's not the exact same thing in 2014, but the Suns, I, I bet, Ben, my, my theory on this is that their their lack of making the playoffs, despite having 40, they won like 48 wins, right? They won 48 times during that season. They did not make the playoffs because the West was a bloodbath. I bet you that that's the reason some people didn't vote for them is because they didn't make it into the playoffs. Whereas, you know, the Popovich 2014 beautiful game Spurs, of course, like that's one of the best all-time net rating teams we've ever seen. Uh, obviously, the playoffs don't factor into it, but we saw how much of a buzzsaw they were in the playoffs. But uh, I, I have a feeling that that's probably like one one of those factors that went into the fact that the the Suns didn't walk away with that particular award. Something I want to like back up and ask though. So this data, this preseason data, just to clarify it, this is based on on betting markets. This isn't like analysts in the NBA. This is like separate third party Correct. betting markets looking at these. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's really fat. There's something. There's something very interesting about how betting markets that aren't necessarily connected to the NBA are actually the ones that might be impacting and, and putting their hand into it to affect the outcome of this award. Well, they're just they're just a reflection, I think, of yeah. the sort of typical expectation of a team. And, and those expectations and reflections are based on what journalists and analysts are saying in the preseason. Everybody under the sun has, you know, a preseason rankings, preseason publication. How's this team going to finish? And that is the information that is influencing the betting markets as well. So it's all kind of interconnected. There's, there aren't going to be instances where, 
a betting market thinks a team's going to win 25 games and then you open up Sports Illustrated's preview and they're like, they're going to finish first with 61 wins. It's just <laughs> never. So it, it is pretty accurate, I think, in terms of setting the or establishing the expectations for a team heading into the season. So, okay, so, so we've identified this historical trend, right? Teams that have the biggest difference between preseason uh, odds and how they end up seems to be in the top three, top five, worst case scenario. How do you feel about that, Ben? How do you feel about that as being a main indicator for this kind of award? Well, let me let me throw in what I think what I would call the final big mm. piece of piece of uh, the pie here. Okay. Um, I think it's the last main sort of criterion that people have used implicitly over the years, and that is if you can find a salient coaching change, right? Something you can talk about. I think that gets you a ton of buzz. And as long as you're pretty good in, oh, we were we were above our preseason expectations and our team is also a quality team. You know, there's a couple other coaches and they might have they might have won more. Like we just cited 2014, right? Greg Popovich is a great example of this in 2014 because the Spurs were only like six or seven wins ahead of their preseason expectation, but they did win what did they win that year? Six, 62 games? They won, a, they won a lot of games that year. Let's make sure we get it this right. It might have been yeah, they more won, than that. No, they won 62 games okay, that year. Okay, 62. Okay. Yeah, man, 62 and 20 for the 2014 Spurs. But I think when you take into account things like injuries during the season, and in the case of that team, all the different lineups that were playing at the time, they were like, what the heck is going on? Like Gary Neal and and uh, Danny Green and Tiago Splitter. Who are these people? How are they performing so well? That kind of goes to the coach in terms of getting credit, right? That That is something that people actually started to talk about, I think, at that point in the season, especially coming off the 2013 Spurs that almost won the title with this like very egalitarian team system. So when you have something salient like that, that you can grab onto. And in this case, it was a, oh man, how is this team so much greater than the sum of their parts? How, who's, the, who's the leading minute getter on the 2014 Spurs? How many minutes per game are these guys playing? Do you, do you have that in we front of you? We are such a wavelength. As you were talking, I pulled it up because I'm like, I feel like I remember this being wild. Ben, Tony Parker led the 2014 Spurs in minutes per game at 29.4. 29. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that would be a perfect example of something where the expectations when you look at the end of the year weren't that much greater than the preseason. But when you have a specific thing that you can point to with a coach that the voting body feels confident about, I think it kind of overrides that. Another great example would be in 1985. In 1985 with the Milwaukee Bucks, you've got Don Nelson saying, hey, what if Paul Pressey like plays point forward? What if we just use him differently? What if we construct things differently? People might not notice things like inverting the post. They used to have, I think, the small guards go down and post up and send the big men out to the perimeter and all sorts of mad scientist Don Nelson things that they they did back in the 80s in Milwaukee. Um, Cody, I'm sure you're regaled with tales about this growing up. You got you got to hear the time, uh, you know, Don Nelson started playing point forwards out there. But I think if there's something specific like that, that you can grab onto as a voter, it's going to bump your case over teams that literally outperform their expected win-loss numbers um, just because of that. That's That would be the last thing for me in terms of historical criteria of how this goes. I'm always really interested to see how narratives kind of butt up against each other and, and either create something better or don't make sense. And I actually think this is this 2014 Spurs is really interesting. First of all, I was incorrect. When I was talking about the net rating and like more than 62 wins, I was actually thinking of the 2016 Spurs whose net rating and, and wins are off the charts. Yeah. yeah, that that's who I was thinking of when I said that. So I apologize for anyone that's thinking that Cody dude does no idea what he's talking about. I, I do. I just caught myself. Uh, the other thing, but I find I find this really interesting because we, we're talking about narratives here. I wonder how many other coaches... And I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but like 
they lost the championship the year before. I feel like usually that sort of thing like takes you out of contention, right? They lose in 2013. They come back. They have the super egalitarian ball. They get 62 wins. And Popovich still wins it for them. That feels a little odd to me. I don't know, like listening to a lot of the narrative buzz right now when it comes to different awards, it feels like that sort of thing wouldn't fly. You'd need to like cool off for a season and then have your redemption. You're not allowed to have your redemption right away after winning. It just, it just feels like something that's so a decade ago, Ben. Uh, didn't that happen with Monty Williams last year? Did it? Monty guess, Williams, wait a oh, second. Oh, you're right. Get, it totally did right, happen on, with this Monty is a Williams. pandemic problem. Whoa. The, the years are all, right? Didn't they lose in 21? Yeah. He, I think he finished second. Against the Bucks. In, in Coach of the Year. They lost to the Bucks. You might remember <laughs> that. And then Monty Williams came back and won Coach of the Year last year. So there's an instance of that happening. Yeah. Okay. Old man yelling at the cloud here. I'm just making just <laughs> making up facts to try and fit into something that I'm saying. So clearly this thing happens more more often than I than No, I, think. I don't think it happens very often, but it, I don't think it's uh, a total aberration. And what's interesting is Monty Okay, so this gets we'll just we'll just play in the weeds here for a second for fun. Um Monty had the most first place votes the year before, but he lost to Tom Thibodeau by just a just a smidgen just a smidgen. And if you looked at Monty Williams in 2021, um, I think you would hear people say things like, yeah, they got beautiful X's and O's. They, they play good basketball. But Chris Paul coming to the team, Devin Booker continuing to grow, DeAndre Ayton continuing to grow. Those guys got plenty of credit. And so it just wasn't quite enough for Monty. The Suns outperformed their preseason expectations by 13 wins. The coach that won it Cody, he outperformed preseason expectations by almost 20 wins, Tom Tom Thibodeau in New York. So even though the record wasn't quite as good for the Knicks, that being plus 20 on the preseason expectations was enough to just get him the coach of the year, but he didn't get the most first place votes. Mm -hmm. So it was that, that again, defaulting to that, like, how, how much better were you than we thought you were going to be? That rubric was enough to get more second place votes, third place votes, consistently across the line, whatever, for him to win the award. Man, Ben, I'm really interested in this. Like, cognitively, when people are thinking about this, when they're when they're going through it and they're making their votes and stuff, do they think some of these coaches are like, oh, they got worse for a couple seasons and then they actually just got better again, right? Do they think that they're peaking at a certain point? I'm I'm interested to know like what sort of mental calculus is going into it. I, I, I think it's like what you said at the top of the show. You've never thought about Coach of the Year before. I think people are basically flying blind. I think we're basically flying blind here. Blind here. Wow. Um, okay. I, 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 we can get into the things we don't know that I would like to know. I want to save that. I want to come back to that, though. Okay. Because here, I think um, I mentioned Paul Pressey, 1985. I mentioned Allen Iverson. 1999. Um, I've talked about some of these like specific examples. We've talked about Greg Popovich in 2014. I also think there can be a kind of penalty for coaches. It's implicit. It's a blind spot. No one's sitting around thinking about the calculus, as you said. But let's take Steve Kerr in Golden State as an example. Okay. Okay. Um, and this actually happened with Phil Jackson before, so we can look at Phil Jackson in a second. Steve Kerr goes to Golden State. They get the big jump in the championship season from 2014 to 2015. And by virtue of getting that big jump, Steve Kerr almost wins Coach of the Year. He finishes second. They were plus 15 in expected wins. They, they won 67. They were supposed to be around 52. Uh, the coach of the year went to the team with the biggest jump, the Atlanta Hawks. They were plus 18, the Mike Budenholzer Atlanta Hawks in 2015. And so then what happens is Kerr gets established. That system and team gets established, right? And then forget Kevin Durant or anything like that because they actually played 2016. Um, and didn't he, did he win coach of the year in 2016? Did he actually get it? Yeah, he did get it. He, he barely eked out. Uh, the award in 2016. But the point is, at a certain point in time, if Kevin Durant had never gone there, 
2017, 18, 19, 20. This happens with all the great coaches. It happened with Popovich. It happened with Eric Spolstra. It, it, we'll, we'll do Phil Jackson in a second because I think he's one of the most interesting ones to think about. You just take it for granted that the team is going to be that good. So your preseason expectation is like baked into the fact that the coach is already really good. So you go, okay, yeah, the Warriors, they should win 65 games this season. But before Steve Kerr was there with that system, with that staff, with that progressive way of thinking about things, they weren't winning 65 games. They were winning 50 games or 53 games or whatever. And so you can only kind of get that benefit as a coach in one season. And then after a while, it's like taken for granted that your system is part of how good the team should be. And this can even work against you, I think, and get you fired at the end of your tenure when it's like, wait a second, we're so close, but why aren't we winning? And then you, the coach goes away and it's like, oh, actually we were really close because the the coach was really good. And that, that system was a good system the whole time. Yeah, so you have like one season, you have like one sneak attack here where you can like slip it in there, yeah. and if you don't yes. get it in that little area, it's over. You're not going to win it. You get the, you get the one time a pa Kim's convenient sneak attack. <laughs> that's all. That's all you get, um, and and then it's over. Yeah. So if you look at Phil Jackson, let's go back. Let's go back to the '90s. Let's get in a time machine. Go back to the '90s. Um, this is fascinating to me because, like. Cody, would would you expect Phil Jackson to win? If I, if, I mean, you might not know off the top of your head. If I asked you, when do you think Phil Jackson won Coach of the Year? Knowing that he came to the Bulls in 1990, knowing what you know about, I mean, so many of us know the history of that team and the six championships and Michael Jordan. When would you expect him to have won Coach of the Year? Off the top of my head, maybe like 91. 91 sounds about right. Okay, and and is that because this is the full ascension to? I mean, what did they win sixty five games or whatever that year and championship season? Right? Is that is that your thinking? Yeah, that's Jordan really hits his peak at that point. They're really clicking. Pippen's so much better. Grant is doing his thing. I, I just feel like that's when the team really coalesced. Okay, I agree with you. That was what I thought. Um, who won Coach of the Year in nineteen ninety one? It's it's Don Chaney. Oh. Don Chaney won Coach of the Year for the Houston Rockets. When I was going back and doing Greatest Peaks and looking at Hakeem Olajuwon and those Rockets seasons, and he's in this like, he's in this like basketball Siberia, man, where they're just not giving him the kind of players that he needs to have. And um, it's a lot of Buck Johnsons and, you know, kind of defensive guys and the spacing is all weird. And there's no concept of using the three-point line. There's no concept of running a four-out offense inside out through Hakeem. The rotations are frustrating. I'm just frustrated. I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated. And I know Don Chaney fizzles out and I know Don Chaney's going to be replaced by a coach in Rudy Tomjanovich who makes these changes completely changes the trajectory of the Rockets franchise completely unlocks Akeem they go on to win two titles but in 1991 Don Chaney won coach of the year <laughs> um let me guess ben, you- was there a was there a pretty big win differential in 91 for him well, we don't have the uh, basketball reference doesn't have the preseason expectations in terms of wins and losses. But if you look at the title odds, the 91 Rockets were 15th. They're in the middle of the pack in the league, and yet they won 52 games. And so they were like the eighth best team or whatever. And so there's this kind of idea that like, oh, yeah, you know. Don Chaney's doing a great job with the Rockets. Again, it just goes back to this rubric of how the vote has historically gone with Coach of the Year. Oh, the Rockets are doing much better than we thought. <laughs> Don Chaney's doing great with the Rockets. Um, Phil Jackson, he finished he finished fourth in Coach of the Year. He finished behind Rick Adelman and behind Chris Ford for the 1991 Boston Celtics. This is when I was a kid and going to school every morning, the the sports radio show, Chris Ford would call into the radio show every morning and give like Chris's corner on last night's. He would do like five minutes of audio describing last night's game. Chris Ford, uh, of course, the first player to make a three-point shot in NBA history. Um, I, I, I couldn't tell you for the life of me then or now why Chris Ford would be third, but I can tell you exactly what Phil Jackson did to 
harness the triangle, harness Michael Jordan, balance the like. Jackson is into these X's and O's things that I think have been historically underrated precisely because people weren't talking about them in the 90s. They weren't aware of them. He's got some of the great in-game or in-series adjustments defensively that I've seen in the 90s. His use of Tony Kukoc and stretch big men and even wanting big men to space the court and the cross matches and the sort of balancing of the triangle. There's a ton of great stuff going on there, but no one notices it. The Bulls were already pretty good before he got there. They were a little better the year before, uh, the next year, 1990. They were where he finished like seventh in coach of the year. They were a little bit better the next year, 1991, where he finished fourth. They win the title. And then, of course, once they win the title, it's like, yeah, now we know this team is awesome. They almost win 70 games in 1992, and Phil Jackson finishes third. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it, t- it took a while for him to actually get established like this is one of those with the sneak attack it had to slowly and gradually build and and something you said you can point to like things like the triangle like if you bring up phil jackson and you bring it up to somebody that knows ball through like the 90s and stuff i feel like most people can say like oh he does the triangle you could also bring up that's like oh phil jackson let his guys play without calling timeouts he let them work it out on the court you could be like oh phil jackson really got through to his guys he had this zen mentality he had his players reading books and really getting in touch with themselves I don't know if there's really any other coach, maybe like Greg Popovich gets up there, but I don't know if there's any other coach besides maybe like Red Auerbach and he had like, he had like his folded notebook and he was smoking his cigar and that's what you know about him as a coach, but Phil Jackson's philosophies are at the top of mind. And I think that's another thing that kind of keeps him in everyone's mind's eye when it comes to this, because you can actually call on those things. Uh, I thought you were going to say with Chris Ford that he was calling into the radio show every day to complain about the, the Boston coach, right? Just like yelling about that idiot that's running the team and doesn't understand things but I you you went a different direction with that well okay so the thing you just said about Phil being the Zen master though that wasn't in the zeitgeist in 1992 Hmm. that didn't come along until later right he didn't those books weren't out this kind of coverage wasn't there so these kind of soft skills that a coach has to have which for the NBA specifically I think lesser at lower levels but for the NBA specifically the ability to manage players' personalities, manage egos, understand at times how to support someone psychologically, how to give them the right space. I mean, the fact that the Bulls were able to bring in Dennis Rodman is in and of itself a fascinating thing just because of the dynamic that he's had with other teams and then the personalities on that team. And of course, documentaries have been made about this with the balance between Pippen, Jordan, and Jackson. But, you know, that is a huge part of coaching. And coaching um, success, I think, in the NBA is not necessarily linear, depending on who's on your team and how good you are. In other words, there's fit with coaching, there's scalability with coaching, right? You can be great at working with young guys and developing them. You can be great at getting the most out of scrappy players and having them punch way above their weight. And then that system is just never going to work for a team of stars trying to win a championship. And on the flip side, you can be incredible at figuring out what to do with elite talent and huge egos and personalities. And then you can go coach some team that, you know, is young and inexperienced and doesn't have a lot of talent and uh, you'll look like any other coach, right? So the year 2000, Phil Jackson comes back to coaching from Chicago. He goes to the Lakers. Um, They outperform their preseason expectations by 14 wins. 14 wins, that's a good number, Cody. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe it was the, the top number that season. Phil Jackson only finishes second in Coach of the Year. Who does he lose to? Who wins Coach of the Year in the year 2000? Ben, I recognize the top 15 coach right there. I recognize Doc Rivers' name right there, Ben. Doc Rivers and, and wins Coach of the Year in the year 2000, taking a scrappy group of Orlando Magic players who are expected to win 29 games or something to 41 wins. And I actually think in his case, I think he did a great job with that team. It was one of those things that got a ton of attention and, um, you know, like, look at who are, who are these bench players that, uh, 
Doc Rivers is coaching. They're, they're supposed to be a team that like basically can't even make the playoffs, right? That's, and they, they ended up not making the playoffs, so it's you know a rare instance maybe of a coach of the year winning. Um, did it help that he was in broadcasting? before is that kind of is that another thing that is like a soft little factor if if people are on the fence I don't know but if you look at that team it was very scrappy it was Daryl Armstrong was kind of the leading scorer and leader of that team but you had Bo Outlaw Ron Mercer missed a ton of time anytime somebody gets injured like one of the key players gets injured and he misses half the season and this the team still does really well the coach can get a ton of that credit. This is young Ben Wallace when no one had heard of Ben Wallace, right? Who's this guy from Virginia Union coming off the, the scrap heap? Tariq Abdul-Wahad? John Amici? Who is John Amici? Um, he, would, he would go on to become a little bit more known for, for other things, but Mo, the aforementioned Monty Williams hmm. played 20 minutes a game for 75 games on this team. So there's this idea of like, you can do really well in that particular situation. And sometimes that's enough to get you coach of the year. If you outperform your expectations, you'll usually be in the conversation, but that doesn't automatically translate to going to an elite situation and having the exact same results. Yeah. So I guess the main thing to come away from it so far is there's not like a unified theory of like, this is how you unlock figuring out coach of the year, right? There's a lot of things going into this sauce that we're making right now. And it's kind of a a special circumstance and each circumstance is just a little bit different. And so I think like the context of the particular seasons, what's going on with them, what we might know about the coach, uh, what they're doing in the public eye, all of that stuff might factor into it as well. It sounds like. No, I think the two things are expectation wins. I think those are the two. That's like 90% of the game. And then these other things we're talking about can sometimes sort of mm-hmm. be the differentiator that in a particular year gets the narrative or gets enough voting momentum behind a coach to to put him over another coach that also has the good, you know, because in 2000, the Lakers not only outperformed their expectations by a lot, but they won 67 games. I thought, okay, is Phil Jackson getting a little bit of a penalty as well because he just won Coach of the Year in 1996? And then is there also a perception that maybe the team is too good? Like Glenn Rice still had a serious all-star level shine. Kobe Bryant was all NBA the year before. Shaq comes back and he's healthy. And the narrative, of course, for Shaq almost winning unanimous MVP was like, well, Shaq got in shape. I don't know if Phil Jackson didn't get credit for motivating Shaq to be in shape, but it feels like Shaq got a lot of the credit that possibly could have gone to Phil Jackson in a in a coach of the year kind of situation. I'm looking back because I think there's actually a case. We overshot it by a couple of years. We're in the 2000. Ben, I want to I want to backtrack to to a little year known as 1998. In this case, I, oh my god, could, would you care to expound upon this particular anomaly in uh, in the coach of the year history? I, I this is this is uh this is a serious anomaly this season. I don't know what happened in 1998, okay? So, the winner of the coach of the year was Larry Bird. Comes to the Pacers, um has a great season and Indiana is expected to win like 46 games. They win 58 games. Perfectly reasonable. The second place in coach of the year is Jerry Sloan. They're expected to win 50 games. They win 62 games. Remember, that's the year they go back to the finals. So these guys are plus 12, plus 13. Um, even the teams that were that were plus 10, Cleveland Cavaliers, Phoenix Suns, they had 10 more wins than their preseason expectations. Their coaches finished in the top five. Cody, the uh, New Jersey Nets, that's where they used to play. They used to play in the Meadowlands in New Jersey. They were supposed to win... 22 games that year. John Calipari um, coming in and uh, coaching the team after coaching at at UMass. Um, Cody, they won. They won 43 games. <laughs> they won 43 games. It was Calipari's second year, and the plus 20 win different plus 21. Right. They're, they're 22 and a half and they win 43 plus 21. This is by far, by far the biggest differential we have for a coach that finished ninth 
Nice. He got one vote. He got one vote for Coach of the Year. It is a complete anomaly. What makes it even stranger is that Rick Pitino, who also jumped from college at the same time, um, it was his first year in Boston, and the Celtics, they went, what, like, they won, like, five more games than they were supposed to win. He got more votes than Calipari. So I, I, my only thought here is that there was a scandal going on back when he was at UMass where, you know, they violated some NCAA rules or something and UMass had to take the final four banners down and they had to, you know, that whole thing they do where they have to give the wins back. Yeah. I don't know who they give the wins back to. I don't know what <laughs> the happens people to those. Give it back to the people. Well, you know, do the coaches get to keep their job when they get knocked out by UMass or something? Like, I don't, I don't get how that works. Anyway, my only thought was that that might have been going on at around the same time in the news. So, so the voters were just like, I don't know, the, net, the Nets are better than we thought, but forget that guy. I would love this is this is a good journalist project. If any journalists are out there that's looking for for a little historical deep dive at some point, I would love to know the background of this because I, I tried like some really cursory Googles of it and I really couldn't find anything that stood out. Like nothing popped off the Google machine when I was really diving into it. So I I would love to know if somebody could find more details about it. Yeah, um, I, there might be a college. There might be like an anti college thing as well because Rick Pitino a decade earlier came to the Knicks. And in 19, it was first year was in 1988 and they didn't have like a super successful season. In 1989, the Knicks uh, have a great season, especially compared to expectations. They were, they were not supposed to finish near the top of the standings. And I think they won 52 games, but Patino liked his pressure defense, full court chaos. And of course he was one of the early adopters of the three point shot. They took way more threes and made way more threes than other teams. It was part of what they wanted to do. Now, at, now compared to today, it's a joke. It's nothing, you know, it's like, it's like 14 or 15 threes a game or something silly, but here's someone who was tactically doing something. The team had a great year and it just it just didn't stick per se in in the coach of the year results. Um, so I don't know. Maybe there's like a college bias. All right. Do you want to do you want to try and apply this to modern day stuff, Ben? Do you want to try and predict like who is going to win coach of the year this season? Yeah. Let's let's do that. And then I think the last things we should talk about are things that I would really like to know to actually make it possible to evaluate coaches because I just think right now we're just. We're just flying blind. Um, yeah, we need you know, to get philosophical, Ben. I, I, we need to get philosophical. On yeah, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not saying we should get rid of the award, but it, it, is, it is just seriously one of the craziest things ever to think about how this award is structured, given the information that we have. So um, before we do that, for this season, what we can do is we can take what we know and we can look at, in 2023 what teams have outperformed their expectations and then what teams have also played really well in terms of overall record. And then maybe, as you said, Cody, think about some of those other tie-breaking factors that would come into play. Um, and I'm just going to tell you, Mike Brown's going to win the coach of the year. It's, uh, I'm not going to say 100%, but it's, it's probably in the 90s. Let's put it that way. I was going to say, because I think the main thing with him, because there's a couple teams that are doing a little bit better. It looks like the Oklahoma City Thunder right now, their point differential is higher. And I think Mark Dagnall is probably going to be in the top three, top five. I feel like I'm pretty locked in on that. I think with these guys, for sure, you could be like, yeah, they'll probably finish in that top five. Will Hardy for the Utah Jazz is probably going to finish up there just because he's tied right now with the Oklahoma City Thunder with about 11 wins over expected. And, you know, we have some time left in the season, but sitting at that spot here. But the thing about the Kings that separates them is the second seed, Ben. Like, they're just a juggernaut in offense. They've been consistently the best offensive uh, our best offensive team like month and month and they've just been cruising and the other thing is I think they have the nice little narrative that people are cheering for the Kings they have the whole light the beam thing they haven't made the playoffs since 1937 like people <laughs> want to cheer for this team and to to celebrate them when they're actually having these victories so I think there's a lot of narrative aspects going into Mike Brown's candidacy 
Yeah, the the Thunder are now first in terms of outperforming their Vegas expectations, according to basketball reference. The Jazz are second, the Kings are third. But as Cody said, the fact that the Kings have so many wins and there's narrative momentum. And I would even add, if if you pulled the average voter right now and you said, tell me a thing the coach has done. If you went to Utah and they were knowledgeable – they, and I don't, by the way, that's not a dig. I just don't know who watches Utah or gets into X's and O's or whatever. Um, if they were knowledgeable about that team, they might say something about uh, Will Hardy's use of Lowry Marketing, for instance, and using him differently and off-ball stuff and something like that, okay? If you went and asked them about Oklahoma City, and again, they they were into the Oklahoma City Thunder beat, Um they might say something about spacing and switchable defensive concepts and all these athletes that are interchangeable and kind of how that that has played out for them during the season. But I think if you go to the Kings and you're like, what have the Kings done? I think every single voter will tell you they play really, really fast and they have these concepts with they didn't, they don't have to listen to us and know the, the ins and outs of their X's and O's. But I think everyone is talking about the Sabonis, the Fox, the speed, the pace. Um, that's a very clear narrative to latch on to. And I think when you have all those things, when you have the expectations that you outperform, when you have the fact that they're a top three seed in the West, and then you add on a very clear narrative thing, Mike Brown's going to win the coach of the year. And those other coaches that we mentioned are are historically going to be in the top four or five. I'm not sure who else could get slotted in there. Sometimes you get a, um, you know, Denver's the one seed. So you get, a, you get something like that, right? You get like a Mike Malone, you get a Mike Budenholzer who picks up some votes, but there's one expect... other team for sure. Tom Thibodeau for sure is going to get Oh in. yeah, yeah, yeah. Come yeah. on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The Knicks as well. Um, it's interesting though. The Knicks are only plus four. People actually expected them to win 39 games in the preseason. So we'll see what their final number gets up to. But yeah, that's that's a great call. That's probably going to be your top five in, in coach of the year. And even though Indiana has outperformed expectations, we've seen this historically, the team isn't good enough. So they've only got 32 wins. So you kind of almost forget at a certain point that the Pacers preseason win total was 24 and a half. Um, just because they've lost momentum at the end of the year, they fizzled out, and it looks like they might finish like 10 games under 500. I think it, it's so interesting because when you look at the teams, I'm feeling like I'm going to try and reflect it onto my thinking too. Because, you know, I look at these and those are probably the teams I would, I would gravitate towards right now. And I don't know if that necessarily seems right. I don't know if I feel icky about it because I'm just falling into this historical trap now. But if we're just looking at these teams... The thing about the Thunder that I find really interesting is like when you look at the Kings, we've talked about this before, they have multiple really good offensive players. Like there's a possible world where you're like, yeah, it makes sense that they sell out so much on offense. Their defense really isn't good and they can be this good on offense. Obviously, I don't think we would have seen the team in general being as good as they were, but it sort of makes sense given the personnel. Whereas like the Thunder, Ben, I look at them and their their defense is like a point or so better than league average. I, <laughs> That's not a strong defensive personnel they have, right? When you look at that team, you're like, wow, I'm actually impressed. I think uh, uh, on, on Twitter, Bowser to Bowser has posted a lot about the defensive concepts that the the Oklahoma City Thunder have run and the way that they're able to use their length and trap and kind of swarm all over the place. And I'm like, wow, you're really getting a lot of juice out of this particular lemon. I'm not necessarily saying that I'm pulling for Mark Dagnall here. I'm really not. But I think that's an interesting thing when you start thinking about very specific expectations that you might have for a roster, given who's already on that team. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, let's finish up with sort of something we've talked around the entire episode, what I would like to know, the information that I would actually want to evaluate a coach in anything other than these incredibly blurry lines. So first of all, data-wise, we have almost nothing on coaches because it's really important when a coach changes positions, goes to a new team, um, you know, when he replaces someone else, that's an example where you can almost get a counterfactual you can almost kind of compare and say okay here's a here's how this coach did versus this other coach but the problem with that cody 
one, the samples are incredibly small, right? Like if you're lucky, you get to evaluate a coach over like a 15 or 20 year career and compare them at a couple stops and things like that. That's if you're lucky. Number two, even in a two-year sample, so you say coach A was there in the year 2000 or 1999, Phil Jackson comes in in the year 2000 and replaces him. Um, how do we know that the coach hasn't changed in a year, in an offseason, in time away? Coaches get experience, and then they learn from that experience. And I think that brings us back to Mike Brown. Mike Brown, some young people might not realize this, Mike Brown won Coach of the Year in 2009. He's already won Coach of the Year. Then he had some sort of almost unceremonious exits in places. He had a false start. In Los Angeles, of course, the Lakers, that's that's their own thing. It's kind of like a, a, a zoo situation sometimes historically because that franchise uh, is under such a spotlight. Um, and then he goes to Steve Kerr's staff as an assistant. And Cody, you said this. You look at these assistants and you're sitting there watching the games and you're like, hey, there's longtime NBA head coach Kenny Atkinson. And you're like, hey, there's coach of the year winner Mike Brass. So if you're Steve Kerr, you're a rookie head coach and you have a coach of the year as one of your assistant coaches. And of course, we, we did a video early in the year on how Mike Brown has sort of borrowed concepts from other leaders in the in the space, including some of the things that the Warriors were doing on offense. So you have this guy. He's from the Spurs Popovich coaching tree. He ends up in... Uh, Cleveland, and then um, then wins defensive, then wins coach of the year for a defensive team in some sense, and the defensive work he's done there. And then over a decade later, he comes back, and now he's doing it on offense. Um, I haven't answered the question yet, but that's just that's just crazy. No, that transformation I think also helps Mike Brown's case because he is a defensive guy. Those 2009 uh, LeBron Cavs at the time were really strong defensive teams, and I think his his defensive coaching with the Warriors, his defensive concepts that he brought there is really what he was known for. I don't necessarily think when he came to the Kings, people are like, oh, he's going to have a high-powered offense at this point. When we're talking about, this is the thing, because I found a few different studies and interviews and talks about different ways that people tried to calculate how valuable a specific coach can be on a team. And I found an interview with Anthony Fowler on the MIT Sloan podcast talking about it. And I'm going to dive into this for a second. I'm not going to try and like get to whether or not I believe these numbers, but we're going to take them at face value just for the fun of this exercise. And essentially what he's saying in this article is that, or in this interview, is that based on, on some studies that they are running, that he seems to think there might be like something like a 14 point difference between the best and worst coaches in the NBA. Now, when he says the best and worst, he specifically defines it as not to get too technical, but I'm going to for a second, two standard deviations below the mean and then two standard deviations above the mean, a huge margin between these coaches. Right. But I guess my question is like, how much of a gap actually is there between the worst coach in the NBA and the best coach in the NBA? And then if we shrink that even more, how much of an actual gap is there between, let's say, the top 15 coaches in the NBA? Because like, if we assume if we have a terrible coach, like honestly, no experience whatsoever, has no idea what they're doing, 14 wins between them and Greg Popovich, sure. But then when you get to like, I don't know, what's like Greg Popovich versus Eric Spolstra? What is any of these other two guys? I think that's the key thing is how narrow of a band are we looking at when we're trying to compare the impact that a specific coach has on a team? Is it 14 wins or 14 points? 14 wins. 14, 14 wins. Okay. You yeah, said points wins. and I was going to punt points? that into the sun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah 14 wins is more reasonable. That's my I, bad. I, think, I meant 14 wins. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we've seen stuff that suggests that. Uh, over the years with new coaches and coaching changes and 10 wins or something like that uh, in that particular team context seems reasonable. So, I mean, you know, in some cases that's, that's like an all-star player, but even that isn't apples to apples because the interaction between a player and the coach as a constant is a totally different thing. So I, I think that seems reasonable, but as you said, like, how do you differentiate between the three best coaches and who's worth more? And I mean, I have no clue. I have no clue. What I would love to know is what it looks like in practice, mm -hmm. right? There's so much data 
in an NBA practice or even preseason or workouts or whatever, that's just not collected and presented to the public. And some teams do track certain things in practice, but I'm thinking of like, I'm data from Star Trek, that kind of data. Like there is so much data. Um, what happens on all the shots? How do players move? How do they perform at these drills? How do they respond to what you're saying? We, we you know, talk about development, um, really fun NBA, thinking NBA spaces that I got to do this year with Fred Vinson. And he was talking about Brandon Ingram's shooting development a couple years ago in New Orleans. And he was just talking about how he was essentially like a sponge and he would just give him something and he would f- he'd just come back and he'd be like, I, I learned that. What do you got for me next? These are things that we have no access to whatsoever on the outside. So that's a, that's a giant black box to me is everything happening behind the scenes in practice, in the locker room. And then we can even look at that from maybe a couple big macroscopic perspectives. First, what are the tactical and strategic things happening? Are you trying different offenses and they're just not working? Um, you know, are you are you running everyone else's sets? Do you have progressive sets that you're trying and they and they fail? Maybe you're trying to teach the players and the t- and the players aren't responding well to what you're doing. Second, there's opponent specific scouting. Like how are you changing things in the preparation leading up to playing teams? How are you communicating that to your guys? Um, how are you ensuring that it's successful? We just have no, essentially no insight to this at all. We've talked another third, a big one that we've talked about would be the entire category of developing players, literally training them. What, what, what are you giving them as a, as a toolkit to succeed on the court? So as a, as an example, Maybe the tactical tactical element a coach provides is he says, Tim Duncan, you go to the elbow. Tony Parker, you throw the pass at him. Make sure the side is cleared out. So our guys need to understand spacing and where to be. Now, a lot of players understand that at lower levels now because of the way the game has become so spaced out. Um, but we, we want to make sure we're on the same page. Then you clear out the side. You have Tony Parker. He throws the ball to Tim Duncan, and you're going to cut right at him. That's the play, Okay. And that got the Spurs layups all the time. We've talked about this concept before. But there's another layer of coaching there, which could be something like where your body is pointed when you throw that pass, how you set the guy up for the screen. When you're Tony Parker and you throw it to Duncan, how close to Duncan do you get? Do you get your shoulder into Duncan? Does it touch Duncan? What's your footwork like? How are you helping players navigate screens on defense? It's one thing to yell at them and say, get up in the ball and do the. How many techniques do you have at your disposal to teach them? We just have no idea about these things. Um, and then there's the entire learning component, like, you know, how much data do they get from their analytics department, um, their scouting department? Because if you're a coach or if you're a coaching staff, you can't control everything. You have to entrust these things to other people. So that to me is sort of the black box that we don't know. All those things happen behind the scenes. We would then probably need to take those things and understand how to compare them to themselves. But right now we don't even get any of it. We just get the final product on the court with a few large noisy pieces of information to evaluate. We do our best. We kind of have a murky idea over time about like that Eric Spolstra, he's doing good things. Um, But after that, man, I don't know. Yeah, the entire iceberg of of judging a coach's ability is completely submerged. All we see is just like the little tip poking up out of the ocean. And I'm actually even more interested in going even like a step further back than what you're talking about. And, you know, there's a YouTube channel that's like FIBA, the basketball channel, where they have like all these different. Yeah, they have coaches clinics. They have people giving seminars. And there's this seminar that Greg Popovich is giving. And one of the things he starts off with in this seminar is he emphasizes, you know, this is coming from a genius level coach, of course, but he says that emphasizing X's and O's right away is far less important than setting up a strong system, than building relationships, building a strong organization, getting the right guys into place. So the work actually starts in scouting the types of dudes, the types of players that are going to fit into your system are going to respond to your system. Because as he says, he's like, if you're going to be a coach in the league, you're going to, you better know your X's and O's. Like that's just a given. But like the groundwork that you have to lay before that is even more important to make it all work out because 
then you can take a flyer on maybe some guys that just need the right environment around them, and then they're going to capitalize on that, which is why, you know, super Homer comment here, Ben, but I made this comment last time. The Bucks just have immaculate vibes, right? And I don't know what starts with, like, the coach there. I don't know, like, Budenholzer seems to have some good vibes, but also they just have, like, good dudes on that team. These dudes that get along really well, have this chemistry from season to season, get along with each other. The Kings, this is a big thing that I really like about Mike Brown. Everything that comes out of that team, he just has, he's just like this, this wonderful human being, and there's not all kinds of sniping coming out of the press with the Kings, and it seems like they're generally getting along, whereas, you know, other teams you see stuff leaking out, and you're like, that does, that just doesn't seem like a strong, cohesive core, whereas the Kings, these other teams, when I see that, I'm like, I judge that really highly. When you're just getting along year after year, stuff isn't leaking out. Uh, I think that's the stuff that I'm most interested in, in how we'd even try and measuring that. Yeah. So there's there's a there's a Ted Lasso human element mm. to the entire thing and then there's also the fact that like coaching within your system within your development can start before they're even playing basketball. It can start with what's the type of player, what's the type of personality we want in our system. Um yeah, it's uh it's very complex. To support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. That's the, the best way to directly support us. We have our Discord community, which uh, has a has a ton of sort of like tools. You can like t- go into the Discord and like talk to a bot and pull up some some basketball tools and and graphs and I don't know what's going on. That's technology chat GPT. It's uh, (laughs) what's happening. It's, it's beyond my, my comprehension. So patreon.com slash thinking basketball. As always, thanks for listening all the way through on this one. Hope you enjoyed it uh, quite a bit. Uh, I did. It was a, it was a fun sort of different perspective to take a deep dive into this stuff. And as always, of course, hope you're having a great day. 